All right, stand with me if you're able and turn in your Bibles to the book of James, to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, we'll read the first 10 verses of the chapter. Hear now the holy, inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lusts that war in your members? Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain, ye fight and war, yet ye have not. Because ye ask not, ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do ye think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? But he giveth more grace. Wherefore, he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. May the Lord grant his blessing to the reading and hearing of his most holy words. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, as we come unto thee at this time of preaching, we ask that your spirit would be shed upon our hearts, that we might have ears to hear and hearts and minds to understand that which uh, thou hast provided for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Throughout the book of James, the Apostle has written with the purpose of teaching with regard to the practice of holiness. It's a very practical book, the book of James. He's, uh, he's endeavored to instruct and encourage believers to wise and good works, and also to correct the known sinful tendencies that he saw in the church in his day. And, and certainly those sinful tendencies are not reserved just for the church in James' day, but, but they, we deal with those in our age as well. In the passage we just read, James 4, 1 through 10, the apostle is writing to correct the source of divisions which had risen within the church. Remember now, and this is very important, James is writing to the members of the church. He has addressed them way back in the beginning of the book. We didn't read it, but he addressed them as the 12 tribes back in chapter 1, verse 1, the visible church of Christ. He's writing to those who have identified themselves with Christ and professed that they are Christians. He tells these professing Christians that the source of their divisions comes from their lusts, those lusts which war in their members what he says in verse 1 of chapter 4. And by that, he's describing the remaining corruption that they find within themselves. 
although they're redeemed, there is, they are still corrupt. There is still sin that remains in the state of redemption. And this, this corruption causes them, James says, to form friendships with the world, divisions with their brothers and sisters, and in fact, to be at enmity with God. He described that in verse 4 of James chapter 4. In verses 7 and 8, he provides an antidote to those divisions and lusts. He says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw, draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Submitting, resisting, drawing near, cleansing, purifying. These are all active commands of sanctification. The idea of mortifying sin, subduing lusts, putting them to death, pursuing holiness in body and soul. Paul says very much the same thing in 2 Corinthians 7, 1. He says there that Christians are to perfect holiness in the fear of God, knowing that we won't achieve perfect holiness, but we're to endeavor after perfecting it, making it better every day, growing in it, nurturing holiness in our lives every day. One of the particular things that James commands is that the double-minded Christian purify his heart. In this passage, he identifies the concept of double-mindedness as an impurity, a corruption of heart, a sinful tendency within the spiritual faculties of a Christian. This is not the first time James brought up the concept of double-mindedness. He brought it up in, in uh, chapter 1, verse 8, He mentioned it earlier and described it as a destabilizing tendency in the life of a Christian. He said there in verse 8 of chapter 1, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. James described the double-minded Christian as a wavering, unsteady Christian, one with an unsteady, unstable faith. We talked about standing firm in the faith in Philippians 4. Well, this would be the opposite of that, a wavering, shaky faith, okay? doesn't mean that they don't have faith. We're talking to Christians here. But it's a wavering, unstable faith. In this passage, and in others which don't mention the word double-mindedness explicitly, the concept of double-mindedness can return to refer to two basic ideas. So in, in defining double-mindedness from Scripture, we want to think of two general ideas or concepts. One would be this one we find in James 1.8, the idea of being wavering or unsteady. Someone who is doubting, unsure, not sure which way to turn. The other concept, and this is more in line with what we see in, in chapter 4, verse 8, is that the double-mindedness of a Christian's life is a contradiction. Something opposed to itself. Literally, the Greek word there is two-souled that we act as though we have two souls, even though we have only one, of two minds differing from one another. A person who seems to be split in half. Someone who is trying to have things both ways when they really can't. I want to be yes and no at the same time. Stop and go. Left and right. These are, these are contrary, opposite ideas. They can never be the same at the same time. 
This seems to be the meaning in James 4.8, describing the contradictory state of those who are in the church and yet still want to be friends with the world. Both of these concepts can tend toward and cause hypocrisy in the Christian life. Now, what is hypocrisy, boys and girls? Hypocrisy is saying one thing and doing another. I'm a Christian, but I'm going to lie to you. I'm a Christian, but I'm going to steal from you. I'm a Christian, but I'm going to hate you in my heart, right? Those things that forms that idea of hypocrisy. In the case of people who are pretending to be believers, right? Those that we would call formal hypocrites, they pretend to be Christians. They go through all the outward motions of Christianity. Maybe they never miss a Sunday, right? They're always there, same seat, always standing when they're singing, always sitting, bowing their head when they're praying, but their heart is far from Christ. They can go through motions, but have no heart for Christ, no faith. For that person, double-mindedness is a willful thing. They're going through the motions on purpose, willingly deceiving everyone around them. That's willful hypocrisy. Knowing you have no faith and deceiving everybody else on purpose. As opposed to admitting the fact and saying, I need help. I must repent, help me, right? They would rather go along making it look good than owning Christ for themselves. But double-mindedness, and this is, you know, James is really, he's hitting us here between the eyes because double-mindedness is a reality even for the sincere believer. For those of us who can be hypocritical at some times without actually being hypocrites all the time willful hypocrites. We can all fall prey to the sin of hypocrisy. We can say one thing and do another. And James' command to purify our hearts of double-mindedness, this is not a qualified narrow statement saying only those who are willfully deceiving everybody else in the church. This is a command to purify your heart of double-mindedness that goes to every Christian, every person even those who sincerely believe. What is the difference between a willful hypocrite and those of us who can be hypocritical? The difference is when you know about it, you hate it. You mourn for it. You weep over it. I'm acting like a hypocrite. Dear God, help me. As opposed to saying, I hope nobody knows. God already knows. Right? There is the big difference between being a double-minded hypocrite and being the one who wages war against double-minded hypocrisy in our life. There's a big difference. Someone can be content with the lie and others will war against it and fight against it with everything they have. Where does this double-mindedness come from? Double-mindedness results like we said, from that remaining corruption of original sin that is within us, even though we are in the redeemed state. And we, we need to get this straight. It's, we need to be careful about how we think of these things. Though our bondage to sin has been broken, though all of your sins, believer, have been atoned by the, for by the blood of Jesus Christ, though we have Christ's righteousness imputed to us, we have, we have been in that courtroom of God's justice, and God has said, 
this man has died for you and you are not guilty. That is true for the believer. Yet, we are still totally depraved. Justification has not cleared out the sin that you've got. Right? It's still, we're still corrupt. We still have a corruption within us. We are still sinners, though, in God's courtroom, we're not guilty. We still have corruption. And we all know this, and it is beyond dispute. We know that we wage war against sin, even though we love Christ. We're told this, and very explicitly by the Apostle John in 1 John 1, 8 through 10. 1 John 1, 8 through 10. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Beyond dispute, the Bible is very clear. And this remaining corruption, our confessional documents and the scriptures remind us that it results in a war between what we are in Christ and what we were when we were dead in our sin with that remaining corruption which we all still have. And that's what James is describing in verse 1 of chapter 4. Those wars and those fightings, don't they come from the lusts that war within our members? He even he uses that term war. Paul also, turn to Galatians 5.17. Paul also in Galatians 5.17 says the same thing. And it's important to remember and to show that the apostles are all saying the same thing about this. This is, this is unified, settled Christian doctrine. Galatians 5.17. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. Notice what Paul, what, what he's presupposing there. You want to do what is right. Can an unbeliever want to do what is right? Absolutely not. A believer can. You want to do what is right, but you've got this remaining corruption, the, this former bondage. It's broken now, but you don't know how to get rid of all of it. Right? You're corrupt, totally depraved, and so you war against what you want to do and what you actually do. Matthew Henry said, the struggle here is like that between Jacob and Esau in the womb, between the Canaanites and the Israelites in the land, between the house of Saul and the house of David. But great is the truth, and it will prevail. In this war... There is also a deep element of double-mindedness. And Paul brings this to our attention in Romans 7. Romans 7, turn to verses, verses 15 through 19. This is a familiar passage, but we want to draw it out a little bit as we, we, we're, we're defining double-mindedness right now. Paul says, <clears throat> Romans 7, verse 15, For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would... That do I not. But what I hate, that do I. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. In other words, when I don't want to do those things, I know the law is good. I love it. 
Now when it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, I want to do what is good. But how to perform that which is good, I find not. For the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. Paul identifies himself as one who wants to keep the law, but is unable to do it as perfectly as God requires, or even as much as he desires. He wants to do what is right, and he does the exact opposite. Isn't that the picture of double-mindedness? looks like a two-souled person, a two-minded person. Paul says here that he has only one nature. He has only one nature, a redeemed one. But that even in that estate, the corruption that remains wars and it draws his mind away to do even the things that he doesn't want to do. Isn't that the reality of double-mindedness that we all struggle with? Brothers and sisters, you are new creatures in Christ Jesus. The old has gone and the new has come. We are no longer dead in sins. We are alive in Christ. We have a new master. We're not under the bondage of sin. Yet don't our thoughts run away from our new master? Even though we hate it? Unlike the hypocrite who could care less, we hate it when it happens. Don't we find that we place ourselves under that old master of sin? And when we find that we've done it, we mourn and weep and agonize over it? Don't we find that we often can't, can seem like a split person, one who believes and professes the truth and our love for God and we love his law and yet we can do the exact opposite of what we say we profess? As difficult as this is to admit and to wrestle with and as though, even though it's common to all of us, it is still sinful. Amen. It is still sinful. And James calls for a purification from this double-mindedness. This sin and the effects and actions of double-mindedness which proceed, proceed from it, they come from thinking and believing contrary to what we are, contrary to our new nature. Brothers and sisters, you are not bound to sin. You are not slaves to it any longer. We have a new nature a nature that now by the power of the Holy Spirit can will to do good, can want to do good. And you can even think upon and desire those lovely things in Philippians chapter 4. You can. Yet, your sinful actions, my sinful actions, my words which are sinful proceed from thinking and being drawn toward things which are contrary to our nature and contrary to God's holiness and contrary to those lovely concepts that we read in Philippians 4. So that's double-mindedness. We are, we are redeemed, saved, new-natured Christians, and yet we are drawn away by the corruption that remains and we fight against it. Amen. And in that fight, we can look like we're of two minds. And it's still a sin. But why this topic? Why double-mindedness? Well, first of all, I struggle with double-mindedness. We all struggle with double-mindedness. It's a great difficulty. It's a wickedness. It's an evil. It's a great and terrible sin, and so we must identify it and endeavor to mortify it. 
To be double-minded, to think and to act contrary to our redeemed nature is more wicked than we probably imagine. We become pretty content with double-mindedness. It's one of those sins that maybe we, we look past. Paul, in Romans 7, in that same conversation about double-mindedness, called himself a wretched man because of it. Wretched. It's a wretched sin. Wretched corruption. James in 4.8 connects double-mindedness with being a sinner, as we said before. So we must, as believers, identify our sins and repent from them. So, all right, let's, let's point it out. Let's put ourselves in front of the mirror of God's word and point it out. But in addition, there's an urgency to this in my mind because the age of Reformed Christianity in which we live is being um, characterized by and large by double-minded Christianity and a contentment with it. And it breaks our hearts. And the fear is that we are also affected. Or will be. There is a good and godly general profession of the, rest, of the historic understanding of the Bible that exists within the Reformed churches, within her creeds, whether it be the Belgic Confession, whether it be the Heidelberg Catechism, or the Westminster. There are historic professions and creeds which men stand up and they raise their right hand and they say, I believe this. There is still a claim that God's word is the only rule of faith and life. There is still a profession that the church must submit to Christ alone as her king and head. In these controversies within the church, I don't hear people denying those things. There is still profession of desiring to please God and obey him. But there is a form and a practice which is contrary to godliness which is contrary to that profession. It is contrary to their own creeds and confessions. Why must churches rewrite their confessions to say we can't have a homosexual in our pulpit? Because people are bending the rules. They're changing the nature of the confessions and the creeds and they're, they're reinterpreting things, even though they say they believe these other things. There is a decline, brothers and sisters, in proper regulated worship. There is a general lack of sanctification of the Lord's Day. Isn't there a growing acceptance of social justice and worldly compassion over the biblical concepts of justice and compassion? Isn't there an acceptance of scientific truth over and against biblical truth? Isn't there an acceptance of behavioralism over Christian sanctification and godliness? a proper biblical anthropology? Isn't there also an acceptance of the world's methods to advance the kingdom rather than to do whatsoever Christ has commanded? There's an acceptance of perversion. There's an acceptance of egalitarianism. There is a documentary that's coming out. Now, it's, it's on the Duggars, but what the people behind it their, their goal is to undermine the proper concepts of the relations between men and women in the home. And those people are going to reformed churches. They have the Heidelberg Catechism. They have the Belgic Confession. And they don't understand what it means. But they say they believe it. 
There are forms and practices of parenting and household establishment and instruction that are all formulated in the world's way of thinking. And Christians say, I will raise my children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, but I'm going to use the world's methods. And they don't see the contradiction. Brothers and sisters, the question is, how have we been affected? I, I don't know for you. I know that I have been in some ways. I'm not, I'm, we're working through it, right? We, we have to identify our double-mindedness. We don't even know how much we have been affected through our associations with believers who don't know better. Through living in this world, we are affected. This is why I wish to speak with you about this today. We need an inoculation against the sin and a warning against the danger. We need to identify it in our hearts and war against it, endeavoring after faithfulness and obedience with a single-minded allegiance to Christ Jesus. So that's the introduction. The the sermon will, the, the points aren't as long. But the outline, then, is we want to discuss the evils of double-mindedness to point out how offensive it is, and then to look at the dangers of it by some examples, and then to give us some good scriptural references to encourage us against it. Okay, we call that the remedies. All right, so let's look at the evil of double-mindedness. The evil of a sin, what does it mean that something is an evil? Well, The evil of a sin is describing those things which make it offensive to God. So when I say we want to look at the evil of double-mindedness, let's look at some of the things that make it so offensive to God. So first, the evil of double-mindedness consists in holding to error. Holding to error. It is an offense to God to hold things in error, to not believe the right thing, to believe the wrong things and to hold to them to believe things which are not true or accurate, to believe things which are not according to the word of God. Please turn with me to Revelation 2, 14 through 16. This is a really important passage because sometimes we can think, oh, he just believed the wrong thing. That's not so bad. At least he's godly. I've heard those kinds of things, right? Well, that's a form of double-mindedness because... From the heart proceeds our actions, right? Sin begins in the mind and works itself out in our actions. I propose that if we hold to a truth ignorantly or wrongly, that there will be some resulting sin that will be working out in our lives. But even more importantly, it is a sin itself to not hold the truth or or to hold the truth in error. And in the book of Revelation, to the church at Pergamos, Christ writes, I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Christ says he hates the errors of the Nicolaitans. Without getting into the details of what that is, the point is Christ hates error. And to hold it is sin, and it's to put you in the way of his judgment. It's to put you in the way of his correction and his discipline. Can you see how offensive error is when Christ puts it in these terms? Now, we can hold to error in two ways. Ignorantly or willfully. Ignorantly or willfully. Perhaps there were some in the church of Pergamos 
who didn't realize that they were holding to false doctrine. As a believer who is sincere, what did you do when you heard this from Christ? Get it out of here. Right? I don't, want, I don't want to believe this. Get it away from me. Right? You turn. You put it away. What would you do, right? If you had heard that something you held dearly, maybe for the course of a lifetime, and Christ says, I hate this doctrine, would you put it away? A believer like David would turn and repent and say, God, try me and know my thoughts. Judge me and show me my wicked way. Please, show me more. I don't want to hold that error. See, that's the, we, the ignorant holding of sin is when it's revealed, we get rid of it, right? But we can also hold to error willfully. Do you remember when Stephen was before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 7? He's, giving there, he's there giving his defense, and he says he sees the heavens open and the Son of Man at the right hand of God. And what did the Sanhedrin do? They stopped their ears because they didn't want to hear. They would rather stop their ears and willfully hold the, hold the, the error that Christ was not the Messiah than to submit to him and believe. It's a great evil to have the truth presented to us, to have it in the word, to have it preached to us, and then to refuse it. This form of holding to error is an act of the will. That's why we say it's willful. We're deciding to do it. We might say something like, and I've been guilty of all of these things at times, so I'm not, I'm pointing the finger here. I don't want to read that part of the Bible. I'm afraid of what it'll do to my heart. We might zone out when the pastor says something we don't like. We might accept only what is taught when we agree with it rather than searching the scriptures to see if what is taught that we might initially disagree with is actually true. We might set up certain non-negotiables that we will not give in on. Now, we might be right. I'm not saying that some of those things that someone might call error are in fact right. But the question is, are we submitting to the preaching, to the reading, when we come against a passage that seems to be against what we've held, what am I doing with that? Am I stopping my ears? The second evil is the evil of inconsistency. Evil consists in inconsistency. To be double-minded is to be inconsistent. To walk one way and then another to say one thing and then another, to believe one way and then another. And the evil of inconsistency can be seen in hypocrisy, weakness, and indecision. We already talked about hypocrisy. I want to point out a passage. You don't need to turn there for the sake of time, but I'll read it. In Isaiah 32, 6, God says hypocrisy is a vile thing. So the evil of the inconsistency and double-mindedness is bound up in hypocrisy, God says in Isaiah, For the vile person will, walk, will speak villainy, and his heart will work iniquity to practice hypocrisy and to utter error against the Lord. That vile person will work hypocrisy. And notice that that's a sin against the Lord. We might be lying to our neighbors, but we're sinning against the Lord. <coughs> Secondly, there's spiritual weakness inherent in double-mindedness. And spiritual weakness is also an evil. It's also an evil. 
When we falter in our spiritual walk and are unable to make progress in sanctification, it is often because we are weak as spiritual babes, and it is an evil to remain weak. It is not an evil to be weak. It is an evil to remain weak. The Lord grows us up into spiritual maturity. The Apostle Paul in Corinthians brought some strong words against the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 4, he says, And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto you were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able, for ye are yet carnal. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, ye are not carnal and walk as men. The carnality of weakness is an evil. To remain carnal, to not advance in spiritual strength. And for Christians, to be carnal is to be doubly minded. It is against our nature. We are not to be carnal Christians. There is no such thing as the carnal Christian. To be spiritually weak because of carnality is to not progress in your faith. And to not progress in your faith because of worldliness is a great evil. Mm -hmm. Brothers and sisters, beware of the evil of not progressing because of worldliness. Mm -hmm. We must repent of it. Thirdly, indecision is an aspect of, of the evil of inconsistency. This is more related back to that concept in James 1.8 of wavering as double-minded wavering. As Christians, we are to believe all true doctrine, and we are to settle the truth in our minds. In fact, Paul says in Romans 14, whatever is not of faith is sin. If we aren't settled on something, if we're wavering, there is a sinfulness in that, for we are to believe all things. We are not to be doubters of the truth. If the Bible says it and we understand it, we must believe it without doubt. Amen. To be indecisive about the plain truths of God's word or to waver in them is to be double-minded. And this is a great evil which offends God since it is a refusal to receive and believe what he has commanded. There is a command to believe the gospel. Thirdly, the evil consists in incomplete obedience. And incomplete obedience is a great offense before God, because it, and it is a sign of double-mindedness. Incomplete obedience consists in stopping short. It's the good enough mentality. Well, I, I put this away, but I don't need to put that away. I stopped doing this, and you know I was doing all of that before, and I stopped, and I'm halfway there. That's pretty good. <clears throat> Christ commands that we endeavor after perfect obedience. Amen. Matthew 5, 48. Be ye therefore perfect even as your Father which in heaven is perfect. Are we going to obtain perfect obedience in this life? No. There's no promise of that in this life. But we are still commanded to endeavor after it. Amen. Now perhaps the church today thinks that Jesus didn't mean it. Perhaps we think that Jesus just said, strive for something less than perfect. Maybe he, we're going to uh, mess around with the word perfect a little bit. Well, double-mindedness professes submission to Christ, but then seeks to reinterpret perfect. Brothers and sisters, we, are, we will not be perfect. 
but we have been commanded to be and to endeavor after it, and we want to as Christians. Why? To earn salvation? Absolutely not. To please our Savior, to honor our God. The apostle in Hebrews is not afraid to point out that we have not resisted unto blood in striving against sin, Hebrews 12.4. In 2 Chronicles 25.2, we read that King Amaziah, who was a good king, did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, but not with a perfect heart. This was held against him in the scriptures. It is a great evil and a sin against the character of God to think that he desires something less than perfect holiness. And it is a sin and an evil to content ourselves with partial obedience. This is a great evil because it also speaks of conformability or comfortability with sin. We can say we hate sin, and then yet we can live comfortably with it. Are we so double-minded and comfortable with our sin that we are going to be content with partial obedience? Brothers and sisters, partial obedience is still sinful. It's not true obedience. And only a double-minded person will be content with sinful obedience. We must repent. Further, the double-mindedness of incomplete obedience is seen in incomplete reformation. It's a great evil for the church to confess submission to Christ and then to think that her king does not require perfect obedience with regard to her worship, her ministry, her government. When Jesus tells the apostles to observe all things whatsoever I commanded you, he didn't mean to stop with all the things that we like or the things that we're comfortable with. We press to everything he's commanded, to teach and to do all things. It was a great evil for the kings and priests of the Old Testament to leave the high places for the people to worship at. Why? Because God had commanded them to take them out. And they weren't supposed to worship that way. It was a double-minded spirit that caused Jehoshaphat to reform the church very well and to be commended for it, but then to leave the high places. An evil result of double-mindedness is to assume that our reformation has gone far enough, that we are conformed enough to God's word. Has it? Has our reformation gone far enough? Are we doing all those things which Christ has commanded? If we judge ourselves by the world standard, that's going to be pretty easy to say, yep, we did. We're better than them. But are we judging ourselves by Christ's standard? Fourth, the evil consists in split allegiances. The double-minded man has a problem with split allegiances, and this is a great evil. A split allegiance is a form of treason, and if not treason, then at least, at least a lack of loyalty. In this case, the evil of double-mindedness is seen in professing a love for Christ and then demonstrating a love for the world. And Isn't that what we saw in James 4, verse 8? Is there a middle ground between a love for God and a love for the world? Can we have a partial love for God and a partial love for world, or a full love for God and a partial love for the world? There is no such thing, as we said, as a carnal Christian. Either you are a Christian or you are not. Either you are a lover of God or a lover of the world. There is no in-between in the Bible. To think that there is is double-mindedness. Our double-mindedness can cause us to think that we are able to maintain both and not get burned. It's a great evil to think that those who are united to Christ can also be united to a harlot, the harlot of worldliness. We're guilty. I'm guilty. 
These are split allegiances. And where are our split allegiances often seen? In our associations, in our friendships with the world. You know, God sent a prophet twice to King Jehoshaphat to tell him, to warn him of God's displeasure with his relationship with Ahab and his son. God offers no middle ground to that king. He says in 1 Chronicles, Shouldst thou help the ungodly and love them that hate the Lord? Therefore is wrath upon thee from the Lord. Not the wrath of condemnation to Jehoshaphat, but discipline. All right, so you get a sense of the offensiveness of double-mindedness and the things that are bound up in it. Let's look at the danger that being double-minded brings to us. We'll look at it through some examples. We'll run through these pretty quickly. The first is the danger of willful ignorance. So we talked about the evil of, of willful ignorance. What makes it dangerous? So let's see how it was dangerous. Jeremiah 36. You don't need to turn there. But in Jeremiah 36, the people of Judah have long been wandering from God in their hearts. They've been imbibing in idolatry. Some of the effects of those associations with Jehoshaphat and the introduction of Baal worship and things that came into Judah by way of of relationships with Ahab and his family have come to fruition. And God tells Jeremiah, write a scroll and send it to King Jehoiakim, telling him what's going to happen to you and to Judah for your sin. Right? And so Jeremiah does that, and he sends that scroll to Jehoiakim. And what did Jehoiakim do? He cut it up with a penknife and burned it. He would rather be ignorant, have the people ignorant of the calamity which God would bring upon them and, and follow in whatever joys or delights or comforts they were experiencing than have them understand and turn to the Lord. Now, it was a mercy. And it was a gracious condescension on God's part to send that letter. And God says, send the letter, Jeremiah, because they, they will repent. And here's a man who would rather stand in the way and cause the people to be willfully ignorant, or keep them to be ignorant, and him willfully so, of their sin. Was the result any different? Whether, he knew, whether people knew or not, the result was the same. God says, because you've done this, the calamity is coming upon you. The judgment still came. We must beware of the double-mindedness of willful ignorance. God has granted us that we receive his word daily in our personal worship, in our family worship, weekly in our corporate worship. And the question is, are we cutting up the scroll? Are we burning it? Because we would refuse to hear. Would we rather continue in any willful ignorance of some sin, some lust that we just love too much? Rather than submit ourselves to Christ, we would burn up the preaching and and throw or cut it up and throw it into the fire. The judgment comes either way. Let us hear and repent and respond. This is the danger of willful ignorance. The danger of incomplete reformation can be seen in the book of Judges. Remember when we went through Judges? We saw how the Lord that the that first generation refused to drive the people out of the land of their inheritance. Instead, they make they made treaties with them. And God said, because you did not obey me, I'm going to leave them in the land and they'll be a snare to you. In Judges 2.2, God charged them 
The reason they left, he left them in the land and caused them to be a snare is he charged them because they did not tear down the altars of idolatry. They were to destroy those things because is there any middle ground between the worship of God and the worship of the world? There's none. But they failed. And so they stay in the land. Was Was there a reformation that occurred within that land? Did the worship of God come to that promised land? Absolutely. But what happened by leaving those altars there, by leaving those people there, that first generation passes away. Another generation rises up, and they run after the gods of the land. This happens again and again and again. Double-mindedness is seen in accepting improper and idolatrous forms of worship, or in leaving them exist within our churches and homes. The danger in this is that if we refuse to cast down the idols that exist, the future generations will take them up in ways that we have not. The remnants of idolatry which we harbor within our worship or in our homes are the things which will become snares unto our children and their children. This is a multi-generational problem. We must be aware of it. We must beware that we do not think that because we have come this far, we can be content. God would have us to remove the high places. I'm not here saying what they are, but we must judge for ourselves what are those high places which must still be removed. Third, the danger of godly, ungodly associations. And this is seen in the example of Solomon and Jehoshaphat. First, beware of double-mindedness in marriage. One of the most critical associations you will make in your life, young people, is who you will marry. You hope that it's a blessed arrangement, but you might be stuck with someone. You don't want to be stuck with someone. And you don't want to be stuck with an unbeliever. By choice. There are times when people come to faith after they've been married. But for a Christian young person to willfully decide to associate with the world and to enter into the covenant of marriage is very dangerous. Many souls have been wrecked and ruined upon upon those shores. And Solomon is the example. Solomon, in all of his wisdom, was not immune from double-mindedness. Think of it. Look at how the sin and the weakness of double-mindedness affects us all, even the wisest man that ever lived. He's still a sinful, totally depraved person. And where did, it, where did we see it in his life? We actually read about it very clearly in Nehemiah 13. Nehemiah is very concerned about coming back to the land and establishing godly marriages. And he says, Ye shall not give your daughters unto their sons, nor take their daughters unto your sons for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations was there no king like him who was beloved of his God. And God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, even him did outlandish women cause to sin. Young people, young people, hear me. It is not just a matter of not marrying unbelievers. There are people in churches who are not believers yet have a profession of faith, their hearts are far from God, or hold to truths differently than you do, and they can be a ruin 
to your soul and to your family. There are people in Reformed churches that hold to a view of social justice in the gospel that you ought not to hold to. There are people who who hold to forms of education that you ought not to, forms of discipline that you ought not to, forms of the sacraments that you ought not to. And they can corrupt you. Maybe not ruin your soul, but wasn't Solomon's fall very great? Beware the danger of ungodly associations in marriage. It's a double-mindedness to say, I love the Lord God. I I believe these truths, but I'll compromise them because he's so handsome. Or she loves me so much. It's hooey. (laughs) It's hooey. They don't love you in the way that they ought to because they don't believe the same things. And then secondly, beware of double-mindedness in your friendships. And this is the example of Jehoshaphat. I just want to detail that out just a little bit. In my opinion, the two, the two uh, ex- greatest examples of foolishness and association are Lot and Jehoshaphat. And depending on how I think about it one day or the next, one might have the ascendancy and the other might not. Today, I think Jehoshaphat feels, feels pretty foolish because here he is a godly man who worked all sorts of reforms and yet he couldn't get out of his way to have a foolish friendship with Ahab. And think of the things that happened. Hey, Ahab, or Ahab says, hey, Jehoshaphat, come down and join me in this war. Okay, let's come down, but let's find out if the Lord's going to be with us. So let's find a prophet. So all these prophets come, and they, they tell him a lie. And Jehoshaphat, sa- Jehoshaphat says, well, I know that there's got to be a, at least one godly prophet here. Jehoshaphat knows Ahab would willingly accept a lie, but he still, he still says, hey, I'll be with you if we can find a prophet who will tell us what we should do. Well, that prophet comes and says, you're going to die, Ahab. Jehoshaphat, instead of taking his troops and going back south, hey, let's go into battle together. And then Ahab says, hey, I'm going to take off my kingly robes, and you keep your kingly robes on, Jehoshaphat, and let's charge into battle. Well, doesn't that seem kind of foolish if, if the enemy wants to kill the king? And so they start charging after Jehoshaphat, and they're going to kill him, and he says, no, 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 I'm not Ahab. So then they turn away, right? And Ahab ends up getting killed in the whole affair, Because one guy just shoots an arrow up and God's providence and sovereignty are so minute that even someone shooting an arrow at a chance will pierce through someone's armor. But that's not good enough just for Jehoshaphat to learn his lesson. He almost dies that day. Instead, he has his son marry Ahab's sister, Athaliah. And so then when when his son Jehoram comes to the throne, you know what Jehoram does? Kills all the rest of his brothers. Becomes the king. He dies. His son, um, oh, I forgot the name here. Ahaziah becomes king. Jehu comes, and he's going to kill all of the, all of the uh, seed of Ahab and puts Ahaziah to death for his association with Ahab's, Ahab's son. And so his mother, Athaliah, comes to the throne. And what does she do? I want to kill all my grandchildren. And, but for the mercy of God, we have the preservation of Jehoshaphat's line. But do you see what the associations that Jehoshaphat had with Ahab caused? It caused ruin in the land. Now, let's be careful. We do have to deal with unbelievers. It is not a sin to work with an unbeliever. It's not a sin to have some associations with the world. But Je- Jehoshaphat gave his heart and trust to the ungodly. 
So much so that he gave his son to his daughter. Right? Parents, there is a great danger in our double-minded associations. We cannot just sit back and say, they're homeschoolers, it's safe. (laughs) They go to this church, it's safe. Uh, it's, It's a conservative group, it's safe. Brothers and sisters, Christianity is more than these structures. It's deeper than these structures. And our associations, although they may not all be sinful, we need to be careful. Because they will have effects upon our children. This is a multi-generational danger. All right. So then, in conclusion, the remedies to double-mindedness. We spent some time here identifying the evils of it, the dangers. And preparing for this was, was gut-wrenching work because it, 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 it's cutting you deep. right? The evils of it and the prevalence of it in our own souls is very strong. But brothers and sisters, there are encouragements and there are remedies and there are instructions to those of you like me whose heart breaks at my double-mindedness. There's hope for the double-minded. In defining double-mindedness, we looked at what Paul had to say regarding his own struggle, and he decried himself as a wretched man, didn't he? But he didn't leave it there. He didn't leave it there. Romans 7, verses 24 and 25. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who shall deliver me from the body of this death or maybe from this double-minded condition? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is hope for the double-minded in Christ. Christ has borne the punishment for our double-mindedness. You will not be condemned for this sin. We might suffer the consequences of it, but condemnation is out out of the question. It's out of the picture. We may not be cured of it in this life, but... What did Paul say then in chapter 8, verse 1? There is no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Though we wrestle just as Paul wrestled, we who walk after the Spirit and hate our sin, endeavor in the strength of the Spirit to put it to death, will not be condemned for this sin. Because Christ has borne the blow of it already. And there's hope, because even though we're weak and sinful, there's mercy. Think of those examples, right? Think of the, the judges. How often did, the, did those generations fall prey to the sins of, the, of, of idolatry and their bondage, and yet God sent a deliverer again and again and again. He did not cast them out of the land. He showed mercy. God showed mercy to Jehoshaphat. Was he killed on that battlefield that day? He was not. Though we may foolishly put ourselves into a bad position, God's mercy extends and is greater than our foolishness. For those whom he loves, he shows mercy. But let us not presume upon that mercy. Let's put ourselves in a place of safety. And how do we do that? We do that by warring against the sin. We walk by the Spirit and not after the flesh. And that is why we wage war against this. How do we fight? We fight by asking the Lord to show us our sin. Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. When the Lord does show us our sin, when he answers that prayer and he shows us our sin, we grieve for it. 
Psalm 31, 9 through 10. Have mercy upon me, O Lord, for I am in trouble. Mine eye is consumed with grief, yea, and my soul and my belly, for my life is spent with grief, and my years with sighing. My strength faileth because of mine iniquity. My bones are consumed. This is a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. We repent then, and we turn from sin. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that he rejoiced that he made those Corinthians sorry because it turned to repentance. We repent. We feel that agony and we turn from our sin. We also pray for a united heart. Could have read from Psalm 108 from last Lord's Day evening, but Psalm 86, teach me thy way, O Lord. I will walk in thy truth. Unite my heart to fear thy name. Give me a single-minded allegiance to you, O God. And finally, we endeavor after new obedience with a single and fixed mind. First, Peter gives those Christians that he writes to in the early church a great exhortation in 1 Peter 1, 13 through 16. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is brought that is be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, we're not ignorant, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And where God requires something, he supplies the strength. Amen. So this sermon has been a call to self-examination, really. Are things really as you think they are, or are they really as you thought they were? What have you been blind to? What have I been blind to? What word of exhortation are we refusing or have refused? The sermon is also a call to press on, to not be satisfied with our spiritual weakness, to not be satisfied with partial obedience, to endeavor to please the Lord, even in the little things, maybe especially in the little things. Maybe that's where the next battle goes for you. The sermon is a call to beware. Beware of how the devil is using our weakness against us this day, even within the church. And this sermon is a call to recognize our weakness and flee to Christ for strength, for growth against double-mindedness. We are not as we ought to be. We are all wretched men and women, boys and girls. But for those who are spiritually minded, we can say with Paul, Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And we have God's own promise in James 4.10. We read it. That when we humble ourselves before him, we're brokenhearted over these things, he will indeed lift us up. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee that Thou art greater than our wickedness and weakness. We (laughs) confess our double-mindedness to Thee and ask that in Thy good pleasure and mercy Thou wouldst be pleased to cause us to repent and turn from such a great sin. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please stand and turn with me to Psalm 57b. We're going to sing the praises of God for defending us and giving us a fixed mind.